Welcome back, everybody. This is episode seven of The Corresponding Author. I'm Stephanie Hicks, and I have my co-host here, John Michelli. Welcome. Yeah, so uh, Stephanie, uh, to follow from uh, last week's or I guess two weeks ago conference uh, podcast, you just got back from a, a conference, JSM. So you want to say what you, what you followed up on your advice or did or didn't do or how was it? Oh, great suggestion. So I attended a conference called the Joint Statistical Meetings. It was in Denver, Colorado. And it's a conference that runs essentially from Sunday through Thursday. I only stayed for a portion of it. I didn't stay the whole time. So that is one benefit. I I wasn't quite as exhausted as I normally would have been because of that. And then I did take time between sessions to have an hour or two off for myself, either to answer some emails. I did go on a walk one day for lunch, um, but the other days I would stay inside the conference center. And for those that are curious, I did not get a chance to practice my presentation, uh, but I did run through the slides at least once while I was on the plane. Okay. Well, that's pretty good. So yeah, practicing a bit what you preach. That's great. Yeah, I think that is pretty good. So today, what are we talking about? Um, today, we were thinking about discussing publications. So as academic data scientists, we were going to think about the types of publications that we typically publish in and just the publishing process in general. We thought we would cover a little bit first and then talk a little bit more about the nuances that an academic data scientist might face. Does that sound good? Sounds great. Okay. So when you think about submitting a paper to a journal, what do you think about? Well, I guess this is a, it's a good question um, that we may not have discussed before, but like when in the pro it, it, in different projects, the picking of the journal kind of sometimes is definitely the last step. So we've written an idea, we've got a concept and then, you know, we have a paper, we have an idea and then we do the research and then we figure out a journal and that's happened before. Or sometimes in some instances, uh, some collaborators have a journal set in mind. So when you, when you're working, do you have a journal in mind for some projects before the research starts or is it always after? I would say about half the time, if it's a collaborative project, my collaborators usually have a journal in mind or at least a type of journal in mind. And maybe not from the very beginning, but at some point in somewhere in the middle of the data analysis and starting to see the results, we get a sense of, is this going to really, really work? Or is this like not really going to work? Or is it not going to work at all? Yeah. I guess that's a good point because there doesn't seem much use in like figuring out a journal if like the research isn't going to go anywhere. But in some, in some instances, like a clinical trial or something, like you definitely know there's going to be results, whether they're positive or negative or null. That is true. I've never been involved with a clinical trial. So I have heard that about clinical trial journals though. Yeah. But, uh, I think for the majority of the work I do, um, yeah, it's usually after the fact. I've I've written something. It can go a few places, and then we kind of, as a team, sometimes figure out where it's going. So, do you ever go to the website of a particular journal or a set of journals and try and figure out if your paper fits into the journal? And then, like, what criteria are you assessing that on? Yeah, I definitely look at their like mission statement or their scope of work. And it's funny because I've submitted and gotten. Uh, things accepted at journals before, like, um, for example, one of them is neuroimage. And then I went back later with a kind of a different um, type of imaging. Data, and then I realized that their their 
focus was actually on a lot, a bit, a bit more narrow than I had considered. It was very much neuroimaging methods, but um, in a lot of specs for like functional MRI, whereas I thought it was a little bit more general. So um, when I submitted there and they said it wasn't kind of in their purview, I was a bit surprised because I went back to their website and they were 100% right. I just never had read that in the past. So I will definitely look at um, a mission statement beforehand now um, or um, – yeah, kind of view that if I'm like thinking of going there, I might as well look at what they really accept um, in their mission, even if it's even if the content looks a little bit different when you actually look at the papers. What about you? That's a good idea. Um, something else I do is I actually open up some of the articles that they have published. And I like irrespective of the mission statement itself or the the scope of the work that they accept, I, I just open up the publications and I try to identify something that might resemble what I'm interested in publishing, maybe not the exact scientific idea, but for example, if I want to benchmark a set of methods, I'm I'm not necessarily developing a new method. I just want to benchmark and compare their performance. I will open up a set of papers in the journal and see if I can find another benchmarking paper. If I find many of them, for example, then I'll be more inclined to submit there because I know that they're receptive to that idea. Yeah, that's that's a good point because um, sometimes we'll be doing something that is like like this is an R package, but there's other methods out there in Python or something like that, and we've implemented a different version. And so, in many respects, regardless of the mission, uh, um, we will be very likely to submit to the same journal. And then um, it's funny because that might—I mean, I wouldn't say it's outside their mission, but it's not very clear from their mission that that paper kind of falls in line with it. So yeah, if I'm like saying like, oh, these are the things I'm kind of referencing, I'm kind of working in a similar framework, I'm just going to probably go to that place because uh, we kind of jump on the uh, gun a little bit about cover letters, but I definitely think in cover letters, you can definitely make the case like look at paper X, Y, and Z that you've published in this journal. This is how it fits in that sphere. This is how it fits in that uh, kind of same way, um, which makes a a good case to an editor um, where you're saying like, look, look, this kind of does fit here. You publish other work. Don't just like necessarily reject it out of hand if you think it's not exactly within the mission. Right. Um, yeah, that's a good point. That's a really good point. Other things that I think people like to look at, one probably thing that comes, common thing that comes to mind is impact factor. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wikipedia says impact factor of an academic journal is the index, which reflects the yearly average number of citations two recent articles published in that mm. journals. So it's used as a proxy for the relative importance of a journal within its field. Journals with high impact factors are often deemed to be more important than those with lower ones. So it is a function of citations. Yeah, it looks like the last two years or something, at least from the Wikipedia page. But So some citation metric. Some citation metric, right. Which, if, you know, who knows if that measures impact necessarily, but sure. Yeah, I don't think it does either. <laughs> I just want to know what the formal definition was. Uh, another thing I've heard people do is look at the editorial team. So they'll look at who are the editors. Either do I know somebody on the editorial team? Have I heard of somebody on the editorial team? Is somebody on the editorial team in my field, my general field? <laughs> like you could imagine submitting a journal, a paper to a journal, and the editorial team is not at all. Um, interested or related or doing anything in the uh, the area that you're interested in submitting a manuscript to, it'll probably be less likely successful with that journal. Yeah. You had an experience similar with the neuroimaging, right? Yeah. So um, that, that's since come around, like I submitted something somewhere and they said we couldn't find an editor that was appropriate, even though I thought it was very appropriate. And then um, I, they 
they moved me to a different one of their uh, under their umbrella of different journals, and they said the same thing. But then, like a week later, I ended up getting a, a, a re, uh, an actual you know review. So I don't know. Um, I, I did not look at the editorial oh, team. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So this this journal though had their editorial teams are huge. <laughs> They're like a hundred people. Wow. Okay, that's good to know. <laughs> It was interesting because uh, we were at a faculty meeting recently. One of the faculty members in our department um, actually said something, and we're not. We're going to talk a little bit of, briefly about open access, but um, he or she said that pretty much if there were publication fees, that they would not publish there, right? So if you think about open access and stuff like that, we're talking like yeah, like costs like three grand or something to, to publish there. Uh, they said that's that's ridiculous. I would never do that. Uh, they do much more methodological research and things like that. So that maybe that's somewhat understandable. But I was. I never thought of like taking into publication fees into account before you even looked at journals. Right. So maybe we should talk about what does it mean to be open open access versus not. Yeah. So we have a you know library system here, and they pay a good deal of money to uh, the publishing large publishing houses of journals to have a portfolio of access. So if you want a paper from Nature or something in Springer or LCVA or um, anywhere in that domain, um, usually you're pay, you pay for that. So there's a, uh, that's usually called like a paywall. Open access uh, as, a, as a researcher or someone who submits usually pay money so that um, anyone kind of anywhere on the internet can get access to it. Uh, and it's not behind anything paid for, no subscription fees or anything like that. But that generally comes with a much higher publication fee. Um, and and kind of, I think when I first saw the ticket price, I was a bit surprised at how high it was. Because some journals, it's it can widely vary. Yeah, it's like in the ballpark of two to four thousand dollars. That's typically what I see. Yeah, and I'm and I will not get into yeah. any of my thoughts on the publication system. I just think it's it's interesting that that is the requirement to allow people to see your research. But this kind of does lead us into the preprint discussion. Right. Um, well, one other thing I think about, sorry, before we leave this this question about what do you look at when you're trying to figure out journals, right, is turnaround times. So some journals actually publish and then they try to put up front their turnaround times. Like we promise you reviews in two months. And some other journals they probably will not publish that because it could take like six months to a year. (laughs) And it varies field to field. So I kind of work in the world of both statistics and biology. And in the biological world, I mean, if you get a review back in three months, like that's a long time. But in the world of statistics, that's almost unheard of. Yeah. Uh, I think that that's a good point, especially if you have something that might be time intensive. And I think in some respects, the biological fields, um, I wouldn't say they move faster than statistics per se, but there are definitely sometimes people uh, shooting, you know, new technology comes out, like kind of first to market is is more is important in, in some of that fields, whereas statistics. Um, yeah, you don't, you never want to get scooped, but I don't know how likely it is somebody's working on something very similar in the same framework as you. Cause I don't know, unless a new technology had come out and you somehow are doing the kind of statistical thing that people would assume to do, but you're the first to do it, you know? Right. Yeah. That makes sense. So, um, okay. So you talked about preprint. So let's talk about what is a preprint versus a peer reviewed article. Yeah. So the way I see preprints is you put them up on a, a essentially a, pu- um, a, not a published paper, but a final paper or like a, the, f- 
a, a draft that you'd be um, comfortable submitting somewhere uh, that goes on to one of these servers like Archive or BioArchive. Uh, I will say I, it took me a while. I, I don't know why. I didn't, I never pronounced it Archive for like the first, like I feel like month or two when I saw it was like RxIve. I didn't, I did not get the, get the pun there. Really? Um, no, I didn't. Did not and, get the memo. Uh, so by uh, BE Press and there's a, a couple other ones that are, uh, but BioArchive and Archive are the most probably uh, prolific in this space where you put up the the draft of the paper and then you can see, I think they put up like tweets about it and then they have links to the final paper and things like that. But essentially it's your full manuscript up there for anyone to see. There's no paywall, anything like that. Um, yeah. But it has not gone undergone peer review. That's like the main difference. People yes. can leave comments at the bottom of the preprint and people have like, you know, journal clubs in which they're discussing the preprints, but ultimately it has not gone through any peer review type of process. So if it's going to go through a peer review type process, different journals have different peer review processes and they usually advertise these on their website. So one could be a, I think the most common one is like a single blind uh, review where you have, you submit a paper. If I'm the author and you're the reviewer, uh, you are blind to me. So I don't know who you are, but you know who I am as the author. And then a double blind review would be that my name is removed from the paper and I'm blinded to the fact that I don't know who my reviewer is. I mean, theoretically, that should reduce some kind of publication bias. Like if there is, for example, a gender bias in, in the world of publications, then that theoretically should re reduce that. Um, and then there's also open review processes. So something like F1000, where you, as an author, submit your journal or submit your manuscript to the journal. And then the reviewer's name is actually posted next to the review and the reviews are made public as well. So everything is open. Um, and then there are things like collaborative reviews where you could have multiple people sort of like tag teaming reviews. I've heard of those. Is that how you think about them? Yeah. And the interesting thing is I think F1000, so there is this also slight distinction that you can have a published paper that's not yet peer, review, peer reviewed in some of these systems, right? It's published first and then like you get the stamp of, you know, reviewer, whereas other time, in most cases, most traditional journals, you don't get published until the review has been undergone, Right. Right. Um, so do you consider F1000 a post-publication review? I think it is, right? I believe I believe it is. And um, I think the discussion of should I do this or not um, is, is very interesting because I would say people who I think in the past had said, uh, I don't put my stuff up on uh, archive or anything like that, um, more likely to do it now. But I think there are potentially some downsides to doing it. Yeah. I mean, the benefit of having, I guess, like an a post-publication review or just an open review in general is I find that the comments from the reviewers tend to be a little bit more sane and a little bit more reasonable because if your name is attached to your review and it's out there in the public domain, then if you just trash a paper and you're just mean about it as a reviewer and somebody comes across that, like that leaves a mark on them. They might not ask you to review a paper in the future if they're they're like in a position of an editor's position. Yeah, that's that's a good distinction too because like I've signed my I've actually signed my name to reviews before and uh, people have asked not to because their policy is a single blind um, 
study, but it's it's also I wanted to comment. It's interesting because sometimes I'll put links to my GitHub or my website or something like that, and when it's a blind, double blinded review, I have to make sure to like kind of obfuscate them or or not or uh, remove them from the manuscript as well. So it's not just taking out like email addresses and names. Um, but th- it is an interesting component that not just not just a signed review, a publicly a public review is is very different, right? So that anyone can see it. So I think you are, I wouldn't say you're nice. You're, you are probably a bit nicer, more more cordial for sure. And definitely not um, asking the world, uh, like you need to do an entirely new study, things like that. And, um, but I'd say the, 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 con- the pros greatly outweigh the cons. And the thing about BioArchive and Archive, I think a, a lot of like Google Scholar and other citation indices um, if it's, if it's out there, it's on BioArchive, people can cite it and people do cite it, right? I know in the genomics world, they, they cite preprints a lot right. and physics, for example, which is very big, uh, they aggregate those citations when the paper is fully published. Um, so the only downsides I was really discussing, I only think really of two of them. Some people are That's very, um, weary that somebody's going to steal your idea, which I mean, if you're on this kind of bleeding edge thing, that's possible, but no one's stealing my ideas in my opinion. Um, I don't. I work in a world in a very fast-paced world in genomics, and in that world, um, I would say scooping happens all the time. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> and yeah, so but I still am a huge advocate of posting preprints on BioArchive or Archive only because it's a great way to get community feedback as you are going through the peer review process. You can get immediate feedback. If like fundamentally you did something wrong, like say I made a massive mistake in my data analysis, I would much rather know now versus like six months from now (laughs) in which I can like fix it. Um, Even though I'm going to be embarrassed and that I made the mistake, it's still worth it because I'd much rather fix a mistake now versus like not fix it at all. Oh, absolutely. Um, The only other, uh, so I guess that that is something I haven't seen that much scooping, I guess. Um, because that is the thing, right? You've published it. Like you can't, if you are first there, you can't quote unquote be scooped. Someone can do very similar things. Um, so I agree. I, I, I guess that does kind of stake your flag in the sand and saying like, this is an idea I had. Um, and the fact that it kind of has to be, um, fully formed in a lot of respects, that's bioarchive and these kind of don't just let you say like, this is my idea. Like I'm publishing it right now. I like that aspect of it. So it doesn't just let people just say like, Oh, I thought about the idea like three years ago, but you never followed up on it. You never actually fully did it. Right. Um, but the, the only other downside I actually seen, which is only is super rare, but I was kind of surprised about it because I've had this discussion with some of my friends who do primary data collection and they're kind of very hesitant to do peer review sometimes, or sorry, a uh, preprint sometimes. Uh, they saw, it's actually sometimes j- journalists and the media picking up on things that are like kind of dangerous and I would say most likely false science that didn't go through peer review and they publish articles that like, you know, X, Y, or Z, which has been pretty well known to be some wealthy, like actually causes like, you know, terrible side effects or something like that. And that could be totally real. I mean, it's not just vaccines, but some of these things that say like, we did the study and like the adverse events for like, you know, taking vitamins was off the charts. And um, that stuff can be, looks very similar to another paper in there. And sometimes, you know, people see, see that, uh, thing come up in BioArchive, they start, you know, writing articles about it, which which it might be true, but um, the peer review process hopefully course corrects if it's wrong. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. One example of how I've seen BioArchive 
work, both good and bad, is that, for example, I was on a, I was a co-author of a paper that was put on BioArchive this springtime. And in the, the, the next five days, we got emailed from a different set of authors who basically were publishing a very similar idea. And so they reached out and they said, hey, would you be open to submitting our papers together to the same journal so we could go under peer review at the same time? And the only reason they know that we had this paper go under review is because we posted it to BioArchive. And so it allowed for both of us to go through, because the journal kindly um, accepted our request, they let us both sets of co-authors go under peer review um, to the same reviewers. And so those same reviewers could review both papers that had very similar ideas in them. um, And that worked out really well. And so we're still going through the review process, but as opposed to us just publishing or putting it on by archive and going through the peer review process, and then the other group just basically getting flat out scooped, we're going through the peer review process together. And the only reason they knew that is because, again, of this peer, I mean, this preprint process. I mean, that that's great. I think that's like what uh, a lot of people's ideals about science really should be. So I, I love that as a, as a example of, you know, how science can really work, even though you, you know, you, it didn't end up being a, a collaboration, which would have been really interesting, but it was still like, no. you know, not a, not a competition at the same time. Yeah. Because I mean, if I were on the other end, like say they published five days before I did, right. Like yeah. I, that would have sucked. I mean, that would have been really bad. And so like, if we really do have very similar ideas, which is good. I mean, fundamentally it's nice that the ideas are all coming together and we're all coming to the same conclusion. That's a good thing for science. It shouldn't really matter who comes first. Of course, like, yes, people want to be able to say so-and-so discovered this first, but basically we discovered this at the same time and it would be great to publish the yeah. journals at the same, the papers at the same time. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. So, okay. So what do you typically like to do for peer review process? Like, do you like the open process versus a single blind versus the double blind? I think I've gone through one double blind review process, but most of the time not. Um, I've done, uh, both. I've submitted to one of the Frontiers journals and they've had um, instances where it's been double, uh, not unblinded. Uh, The majority I've done are single blind where they know who I am. And I've done one where I think it's double blinded where I had to, that's when I had to remove all these links and certain things like that. Um, I am generally okay. I, I, I tend to try to publish some software. And if I make a method, I tend to try to put some software with it. So I think a double blind is kind of hard. Um, with that, with those types of papers specifically, because I want to show you the software, I want to show you, and usually that's going to be on my GitHub. It's going to be completely identifiable. Um, so at least for certain instances, I think double blind is pretty hard. Um, I like the open, uh, I, I actually like the, a lot more interactivity with, uh, so the frontier system was, was pretty nice where it was like, you know, comment here, comment here. You can kind of have a conversation. Whereas, uh, the traditional way I found is just like, here is a, dump load of comments and like I have to send you like an entire like shotgun of like all the responses at the same time and that seems that's that's a lot of work on both ends but I can understand where you don't want to keep pestering reviewers over and over again so I like the interactive one but I can understand that's a burden on a lot of reviewers 
Yeah, that makes sense. I Yeah, I think I very much like the open process the most. I feel like I get the most reasonable comments that seem to be most helpful towards submitting my paper and making it better. And I find it's a faster turnaround time because usually people are that know, or people usually it's like, you know, that the reviewer got assigned on this date and it's like two weeks later, hopefully you get reviews back and then it's fast turnaround for you to be able to make changes and go from there. So for me, that typically works the best. Um, Okay. So let's say we've identified our journal now. Um, What do we need to do? So you mentioned cover letters. Do you want to talk about cover letters, what they are and how they work? Yeah. So, um, Usually you write like a little synopsis, usually dear editor or, you know, um, dear whom it may concern where you say, you know, this is a short blurb uh, that's even shorter than the abstract depending like what this is. Why is it kind of novel? How does it fit in your um, journal? Why do we think you're a good journal for this? Um, And again, maybe citing some other papers that are somewhat similar so you can draw some parallels. and then uh, depending on the journal, most journals have like an actual area where you suggest reviewers or you actually can oppose certain reviewers. Um, and you don't necessarily always mm-hmm. do that in the cover letter. I tend to write in like LaTeX and PDFs and all that stuff for my uh, manuscript. But for the cover letter, I feel like I always do that in Word because usually put that on letterhead, usually has like your, you know, your um, logo of your school and things like that. Um so generally I'll do that in Word because I have a template there and then uh, you sign it. Uh, what else? What am I missing? Yeah, I think that's it. Maybe include the date. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> uh, yes, yes, the date. Uh, also make sure if you are reusing a cover letter, you use the correct journal name. Oh, yeah, that's a big one. I can imagine many people have gone awry that way. <laughs> yeah, especially because that's some, one of the first things you see and I'm sure that rubs some people. That would rub me a little, not, not totally wrong. I wouldn't like reject anything, but it can't, it can't help. Right. Definitely doesn't help. Um, yeah. So you submit your cover letter with your manuscript. What do you think about formatting journals that require strong formatting that adheres like on your first submission or even better, like the ones, if you have like a hundred people as co-authors that require you to individually put the person's name, email address, Ugh. institution, like all this information for the first submission. What Ugh, do you think about that? That, that is rough. Uh, so a few things, if you don't have an ORCID profile and you're in academia, I would say get one because uh, that makes the process somewhat easier because a lot of these systems are like, just put in a bunch of ORCID IDs and then we'll fill in that in. So that's kind of nice. Um, and I think it's just ORCID.org. Uh, so it's kind of like a, an identifier that can keep you across institutions, I believe. Um, So uh, Mm -hmm. I think, so there's a lot of frustration on formatting, right? Because nothing gets more frustrating. You spend hours formatting a paper and then it just gets death rejected or rejected just um, after the first, uh, no revisions. So I try to use templates. I use this R package called articles. Uh, It's the word articles without an A. And so that allows you, Mm -hmm. not seamlessly, but it allows you to switch back and forth between different formats. Hmm, I haven't heard of that one. Yeah, it's 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 really great. So there's templates for Springer, uh, Elsevier, Frontiers, um, R Journal, things like that, and it kind of makes up the tech template for you, which is pretty nice. Um, uh, I will usually always have high resolution figures just in case um, they they require them, but I 
try to not do that much work on formatting until kind of later, but I will make sure that it's not like formatted for a different journal <laughs> um, and submit it. Like if I submit it to, to place A and then I go to place B and it's a totally different format, I will change it to just maybe a generic format or their format and not leave it in like a different at a journal systems format. I won't do that. Yeah. I tend to try to keep like a generic journal format for as long as humanly possible. Like I'll even sometimes submit it using a generic format. And then if they're sticklers, they will email me back right away and they'll say, your references are not the particular format that we need, or you didn't include like these specific subheadings or your format is not, I mean, there's something wrong. It's not like um, double spaced or uh, the figures not next to the text, for example, like some journals require the figures to be at the bottom when you submit a manuscript. And I personally hate that because then you're flipping back and forth between the text and the figure, like back and forth, back and forth, as opposed to having the text sort of somewhat near or the figure somewhat near where the text is in the manuscript. It's just generally easier to review and so I'm a big fan of leaving the figures right next to the text, but some journals are sticklers and they will send it right back to me. And that's happened many times. But on the other hand, some journals, it turns out, are much more forgiving. Yeah. And I think if you look at this from a paper journal perspective, a lot of these things make sense, right? And that's why a lot of these, I would say, newer journals where they've only been around for five or 10 years um, have changed a lot of those ways. Because if you have publication fees uh, for number of tables, number of figures, things like that. Or if you really do different types of um, typesetting where you had the figures put in a sp specific way, I can understand why they originally had that. And I, I understand like it's hard to change. Like if you've been doing the same thing, not the same thing, but if you've understood this pattern uh, for so many years, I can understand a little bit of resistance to change, but I, I, I agree. Some things that are geared towards paper like printing things out on paper that don't make as much sense in a digital world can lead to a lot of frustration when you submit. Yeah, that's so true. So true. Okay. So say you've got your cover letter written and you've got your journal, your manuscript formatted for a journal or not, yeah. <laughs> depending on how <laughs> brave you're feeling that day, then you submit to the journal Different journal websites have different submission instructions. Some are willing to take just a PDF. Some demand, like if you submit in a LaTeX format, some actually demand the LaTeX files themselves on first submission, which is a little crazy in my mind. Um, it should just work with just a PDF. <laughs> I mean, I understand like if I'm going through a second round of review that, yeah, sure, you can have the LaTeX files. But if it's just the first round, I don't see why you need the LaTeX files. No, I agree. And, and if you think, if you think, sorry, if you think about it in the way back when you literally mail your manuscript to someone, it's like, who cared, right? Well, I guess you had to have it formatted back then. I don't know. Oh, right. I'm not sure how that worked, honestly. But it's a good thing to look into. <laughs> um, okay, so we submit to the journal and then it goes off for peer review and at whatever form it goes in. And hopefully at the same time, you're submitting a preprint to a archive or by archive or, or someplace or even posting it online as a blog maybe. And then we wait. And so you could ask another question you were thinking about asking is, is there a connection between what you as an author, um, where you submit your journals to and where you review journals? You were asking that earlier. Is there a strong link there for you? Mm, I definitely will review for the journals I submit to, but I tend to review for journals I've never submitted to. So 
One's usually a subset of the other, but not uh, not both ways. How do you think they find you? The ones you've never submitted to. I I think like key. I think that's what a lot of keywords sometimes like do and overlap. They're like, oh, that that person's published on something similar, um, you know, just some Google search, Google uh, Scholar searches or something like that, or PubMed searches, and I I hit some of the keywords that this abstract has. Mm-hmm. Or your website, yeah, maybe. No, that's true. Um, or like th- they might do a cross. I wonder if they do like a cross reference of the reference lists. Mm, maybe. maybe that's a good idea. But I, I don't think most papers are, are formatted in a way where you can easily extract the references, right? Right. I don't think so either. <laughs> um, yeah, so I definitely review for a wider selection of journals too than I submit for. Mm-hmm. Yep. So lately I've been getting some review requests from more high-impact journals. And I don't have as much luck with the high-impact journals yet. <laughs> but it is nice that I'm becoming like, more familiar with the editors of these high impact journals. So hopefully my navel, when my, when, when I submit these papers to more high impact factor journals, hopefully I'll be more well known. <laughs> yeah. We'll probably do a follow up on like reviewing in the process and kind of how, what you feel is your uh, responsibility and likewise, but yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely feels that way. Um, it's, it's, you know, you review for like nature and then you submit and it's like, no, <laughs> no. <Yeah. laughs> um, but I will say something about the instructions for authors. I think uh, you were saying um, formatting and stuff like that. So I generally see those as like instructions for when you publish. But the one thing about preprints, uh, you do have to really look carefully sometimes because certain very a very select subset of journals uh, consider preprints almost as like a publication in another area. So if they find your preprint, actually, it yeah. And I have um, come across even journals that I've submitted in, they have a policy such that they allow preprints in the first submission, but after it's gone peer review, you cannot submit a preprint. So they basically say, if a reviewer has taken the time and effort to give you comments on the paper that you submitted to the journal, at that point, if you make changes to it, you are not allowed to post a second preprint because the journal has invested time and effort in giving you feedback and so I don't know what you think about that, but I know some journals are like that. The journal, AKA the unpaid reviewers. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But I can understand that from, uh, so I, I work in stroke and there's this big conference of the international stroke tri- uh, conference. And you know, that's where a lot of the phase three trials go and like give results and they actually embargo anything. So like you can't publish, like if you've submitted an abstract for like anything there, you actually can't publish until that conference proceedings is over. Um, so they actually have embargo limits that like, if, and if you mm-hmm. violate them, like you're like banned from the conference for a few years or something. Um, so they enforce it. Oh, okay. So, um, fascinating. Yeah. So that's a different world altogether, but I can, I can understand some, some sides of that. Like otherwise, like that's how you really keep, uh, participation up at these conferences, which makes the conferences really good. But on the flip side, it can be kind of restrictive as an individual that you're like, I wish I could publish this right now, but that conference said I can't. Right. That makes sense. (laughs) Uh, okay. So what are some things as academic data scientists that are more Mm -hmm. unique to us that, maybe our counterparts that are in a traditional department don't face. Like one example would be in my mind, I publish in a wider breadth of journals. So I publish in computational journals, methodological journals, biological journals, um, many different types of journals. And 
I find myself spreading myself a lot wider in terms of this, the types of places that I would submit papers to compared to maybe somebody who's a traditional statistician or traditional computer scientist. I would argue that there is a smaller selection of papers that they usually bounce around between. What do you think? Yeah, no, I would, I would definitely think that. Um, and sometimes if you're doing a lot of computational work, like the product is the package. And so it's, uh, so usually with some of these packages, you have like long form documentations or tutorials, which kind of demonstrate how the package is used and have a lot of code in them and are reproducible a lot of times, but they're not peer reviewed publications. So they don't go in your CV the same way. So in order to get academic credit, a lot of times you still have to write the paper. And it's very interesting because writing about software and submitting that is, is a different, is it, is it not odd? It's kind of odd to me sometimes because it's like, Oh, I want to show you the code, but like, that's not really the, I should, I wouldn't say I shouldn't, but this isn't really the audience to do it. So it's just really interesting because you're talking about code and implementations and things like that, but you have to use like pretty much still a lot of pros and you can show code, but it's not necessarily like a vignette or something, which is an actual demonstration, which a lot of people, which is interesting, find a lot more useful. Yeah, though, I mean, so I saw some talks this um, past week at the conference I was attending from, one was from Mike Love at uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and he was talking about publishing workflows. So the idea is the paper itself is essentially a reproducible document that knits and integrates together code with text with the results, essentially like all in one place. And that is the product of the paper. So it takes it from something that you have a script file or an analysis file, and then you have the paper file, whether it's a Word document or whatever it is, and then it essentially brings them together. And so you, as an author, are producing a document that is completely reproducible, and that is the paper that gets reviewed or the manuscript that gets reviewed. It's an interesting idea, and I don't think it has hit mainstream because it's so new, but it would be nice for journals to go in this direction. Well, I, I know um, Rob Scharf, who's at, at Hopkins, He he's always worked, like his whole workflow is our packages. Like the vignette is the final paper they're doing, the data is included in the package and things like that. So I think it's a, it's, it's a strict structure to work in, but I think it's super useful and actually does lend itself towards what we do. But I guess I'm running into instances where like, I might not have a data set. So there's no action. There's no analysis. The product is the package, the code. So I, Oh yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. So, but I agree with you. If you have a data set and you're doing an analysis and developing a method and that method is implemented in the package, I think that's a great uh, workflow to set up because it's all there. It works together. You can test it in interesting in uh, reproducible ways. And you know, at the end of the day, it's all going to work. Right. And if like five years from now, a graduate student wants to reproduce the work, you just download the R Markdown or the reproducible document, whatever it is, the Python notebook, and it theoretically should work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that takes a lot of work, but when it works, it's like magic. It is like magic. You're right. <laughs> okay. So any other things that we needed to cover? I'm sure there are things we're missing. No, I, I think that's it. Oh, there was one last thing. Um, I don't do this, but a, uh, a colleague of ours today was saying that, that uh, he or she submits an abstract to the editor to see whether they might be interested in, in the paper before kind of going down the submission process and may or may not getting desk rejected. So I tend not, I, I don't do that generally, but I think that's not a bad idea. I think for manuscripts in which I literally have no idea where to submit it to, that's the only survival mechanism I've got. 
because I need to figure out early in the process if an editor is just going to laugh at me and desk to reject me or if an editor is going to like give me the time of the day and maybe consider it. Yeah, that's as I went through that process where I got desk rejected a bunch of times and afterwards I was like, I probably should have just shopped that around a little bit before just going whole whole hog in there. But I don't do it for every journal submission, but for quite a few, maybe more and more I've been doing it. So we'll see. Okay, so the last segment, unwritten rules of academic data science. Do you want to go first? Or me too. Uh, no, I can go first and you can close it out. Okay. Um, so I um, am a huge proponent of open source software and just kind of developing software that if you're developing methods, um, I think that's fantastic. If you can uh, apply new methods to a data set or a different type of data and it's great, but I am pretty strict on that if you're developing methods without software, you have a really nice idea. Um, and if it never gets implemented, it's, it's really hard for me to see the impacts. Um, if for, for academic data scientists, for me, if you're developing a new method, there should be some associated software or at the very barest minimum, some pseudocode. But I would say that's still not enough for, um, me in some respects. So I, I, a lot of times when I review, I will ask many times, like, where's their code? Is there software? Can I download it? Can I use it? Do you have, do you have data sets out there? What's going on? So for me in data science, if you're developing methods and you know, you're not, um, prohibited by your company or your team to release the software, I usually push very strongly to do that. That's interesting. I mean, I am at a point now that I just straight reject it. Like if I see a paper and they claim that they've implemented this in some code, but I don't see the software or there's no link or I can't, I mean, it doesn't work. I, I just send it back. Like I, do, I just stop what I'm doing and I send an email to the editor I'm saying, I'm not willing to continue to review this paper until I see software. And then it's up to the editor to decide what to do from there. I mean, they could say, okay, thanks, we'll get another reviewer. Or they could send it back to the authors and ask for a link to the software. But I just I just don't accept that. Like, it's fascinating to me that, like, you think that's a, a rule. Like, I that should, I mean, that should be, like, standard. It, it's interesting because um, there. I think there, there's also a disambiguation because I do, I get asked to review some of these deep learning papers and I know some of them are trying to spin off like companies or work from this. So I can understand some hesitation, but like, so like, let's say you create a model um, and, it, and we're thinking like neural networks and you, you showed the framework. I think that's good, but then you have estimated model weights, right? You have the model somewhere in code, like it's an object, a file you can send. Yeah. And I can understand more hesitation for releasing that, um, but I still would be a big, like really push really hard for that. So I can understand where they're coming from, but like I think this is just a thing where like this causes problems with reproducibility because like if I can't test your stuff, like how can I trust it? And at the end of the day, I'll say twofold: one, I'm willing to t- test it, which is not easy to come by, and the other thing is that um, as a reviewer, if I can't get access to it, what are the hopes that any person who requested from the authors can get to it? Like if a reviewer can't get it, nobody can. Nobody can. I know. I know. It's just fascinating to me that papers these days could have no software. <laughs> if they say that there's code, I mean, like I expect to see software. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to cite you and, and say uh, the recommendation from my colleague is just to reject this paper. I just, I just say no. Yeah. Like I just stop what I'm doing and I say no. Yeah. No, I, I think it's, <laughs> it's similar for plagiarism. Like if I come across a paper 
or manuscript and I see plagiarized code. Like one time I was reviewing a paper and it was something that it was an area that I had worked in during my PhD work. And I, I saw that they basically plagiarized some of the text from one of the papers I had written and they didn't cite me. And it, it happened like multiple times during the, uh, the manuscript. And so I was like, and the only reason I knew this was because I wrote the original paper and like, I tend to write things in a particular way. And I just, I was like, hmm, that sounds really familiar that I went back to my paper that I had written many years ago. And I was like, what? And so at that point, I just say, nope. And I stop and I send it back to the editor. I'm like, um, there's plagiarism going on here. What would you suggest doing? That's wild because I, I know there's been a lot of discussion of misconduct in many capacities at like conferences and stuff, but like this is like clear that's clear scientific misconduct. And like where do you even go with that? Right. Like like you like it, it feels strange to like email their chair or that whoever their boss is. It feels odd to do that. But like it that's the big frustration is like where can you know I wouldn't say I, I don't I'm not saying they should be punished, but like this needs to be discussed. Like how you know, and it's, and it's crazy because if it wasn't you, like it would have gone through and anyway. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't see that side of things, but for me, it's the same with code and software. If they say, if I, if the authors say there's code or there's software and I don't see it, like it's the same in my mind. Like I, I feel like there's scientific misconduct. Like you are saying you're doing one thing and it's not being provided. I mean, I, I'm just, I'm not going to continue to invest time and energy in that. So you see it kind of as a lie by omission kind of in some respects. Yeah. I mean, if you are producing this product, whether it's a paper or software, whatever it is, like you're, you're writing down what you did. And if you are writing down that you implemented your code and software and it's freely available, but it's not available, like I can't trust that. Like I, I can't trust that you've actually done that. Um, it could be anything that you've done. Yeah. I see in some respects when people are like, we use this in-house method and no citation. We published it nowhere. And we're like supposed to assume that it does what you say. And my favorite is it's very common or it used to be very common in genomics papers. Um, we implemented our code in custom Perl scripts or Python scripts or something or our scripts. And you're like, okay, where are they? Show me the scripts. And they're like, no, they're in-house. Like they're custom in-house scripts that we're not planning on showing you. And that's like not acceptable in my mind. No. Also, have you ever had an uncustomized script that's like, you mean out of the box software that someone else published? Like what? <laughs> I know. <laughs> so anyways. Okay. My unwritten rule for academic data science is when you're responding to the reviews of, so say you submitted a paper to a journal, they got back to you, they went through the review process and you're given a set of reviews. Um, we can go through this later about like how this process works, but um, whenever you are responding to the reviews, I have been told many times by many different people that the best way to start each response is we have now done the following and basically acknowledging that you have understood what the reviewer has requested point by point and then directly responding to them and saying in this new revised manuscript, I have now done the following. Like I have addressed your concern by doing the following. Because it's easy to just sort of like fight back with the reviewer, but a reviewer sees straight through that. If you explicitly say what you have done in response to their comment point by point, that tends to be a lot easier in the long run. Absolutely. And it, it's better for, from the reviewer side. And like you cite like this paragraph, this section. And um, 
I'm definitely one that like I see a revision and my suggestion, if you are, you know, sometimes get really worked up, take a lap, take a day, like read the revision, read the reviews. And then just like, don't respond to that for at least a day. Cause sometimes I'm like, you gotta be, you gotta be kidding me. Like, so just take a deep breath. Um, definitely don't fire off any, any rash emails. Um, but yeah, that's that, that's the necessary thing. So true. As a reviewer, you love it when it's just like, oh, they did that, they did that, they did that. Right. Yes. It's so true. It's so true. I rarely fight back with reviewers at this point. I'm always basically just bending to their will. If it's something that's really outlandish and I think insane, then I will fight back, usually by talking to the editor directly or explaining to their, I will attempt to explain to the reviewer, but usually that just fails. (laughs) and The reviewer comes back and is like, you didn't do what I asked. (laughs) That's 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 true. And the one thing I'll say is sometimes you think it's just a really wrong and terrible comment. And it turns out like you find some insights that make the paper stronger and, and totally something you didn't think about and actually could be the next paper. So, you know, this is these true. people are trying to yeah. make your paper better most times. So I think you should see it in that guys. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. All right. So thanks, everybody. That's a wrap. Have a good day. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at correspond auth or my handle is strictly stat and stephanie's is stephanie hicks and you can email us at the corresponding author at gmail.com